What are we beyond ourselves? It's not a simple question. Are we divine heroes or just feral villains? Perhaps a bit of both. Thomas Mitchell will be your host as we analyze the stories and events, both large and small, collective and individual, that shaped the human experience. Welcome to Turning Points. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Turning Points. If you listened to our last episode, it was on the, the life and work of Dr. Karl Marx. And most of that episode was was based on the things Marx was saying, the ideas he was trying to get across, and what the consequences were of, of those ideas. The other side of that coin is that a lot of what Marx talked about happened to be very cut and dry, very clinical economic theory, which we didn't really cover in the podcast because it's kind of a rabbit hole in and of itself, and I didn't want to distract from the topics we were discussing in that podcast by complicating it with all of Marx's hardcore economic theories. So I thought, you know what, save that stuff, create another podcast, use it as an addendum for the main podcast that we created on Marx. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, This podcast is going to serve as an addendum for the Marx podcast. So before you listen to this one, make sure you listen to that one. It's episode seven. But I thought it was important to make sure that that we did cover and we we did talk about uh, Marx's more advanced economic theories. Because at the end of the day, it's a big part of who Karl... And typically in discussions of Marx, there's two types of discussions. There's one that's more on the theoretical side. It talks about his views on history, uh, his views on politics, more of his philosophies. And then there's the other argument that's really a hardcore study of the hard science of his economic theories and a discussion in and around that. So that's the discussion we're going to have today. Uh, It may sound a little more clinical, but we'll try and make it interesting nonetheless. So what we'll be discussing today is Marx's mature views on capitalism. These would be the views that he would have had in the 1860s and 1870s, you know, in the decade or two right before his death, right? We're not we're not really going to concern ourselves with what he believed when he was writing the Communist Manifesto because obviously over a person's life, there's a certain evolution to the things that they believe. We're operating under the, the assumption that Marx is best towards the end of his life when he has the most amount of experience He's had the most time to reflect. He's had time to study, the most time to prepare his economic theory. If you remember from the Marx podcast, Marx is trying to understand the question of what is it that people are involved in who are engaging in a serious and systematic analysis of capitalism? Marx answers that question in what was a very orthodox way for the 1860s and 1870s. It seems unorthodox to us, Because we're looking at it 150 years later. The things people focus on when they study economics is far different today than it was in the middle of the 18th, or excuse me, the middle of the 19th century. Our views are different. Our experiences are different. You know, it's kind of like physics. There's been an evolution in the study of physics. What Newton believed about physics is not what Einstein believed about physics. There were three major problems in any classical study of political economy in the middle of the 19th century. And in order to have a serious economic theory of the day, you had to address all three of these problems. The first problem was that you needed two theories of value. You needed a natural theory of prices and you needed a market theory of prices. It's very different than today. Today, we operate mostly under the neoclassical view It's the modern view of capitalism, and it says there are no natural prices. Everything is determined by the law of supply and demand. It's all market prices. Guys like Adam Smith and other economists of his day believed that you needed a natural theory of value because the price had to come from somewhere. They weren't ignorant of supply and demand. They, they, They were cognizant of its power. They just didn't believe it told the whole story. 
market prices to them were bounded around a fixed point, right? Okay, so if you have a widget, the widget has a natural price, and then supply, the law of supply and demand will, you know, increase the price if there's more demand, or it might decrease the price if there's less demand, but those fluctuations in price, they all revolve around a, a central point. So you could think of it like a boat slip. The level of the boat slip is going to go up and down as the tide goes in and out, you know, but it's going to hover around a central point. So to Smith, to Locke, to Ricardo, and to Marx, the labor theory of value told you what that point was. It told you what that natural price was. All right, so labor theory of value equals the natural price, supply and demand equals the market price. Uh, and, and so that's a very 19th century convention. While the two worlds have similarities, they're, they're far different. The second problem was that there was this widely held belief that there was a declining tendency in the rate of profit. All right, so this is a widely accepted view at the time. And if your theory couldn't answer this question, then your theory wasn't worth the paper it was written on. Again, it's a 19th century convention. We don't believe in the modern world that there's a declining tendency in the rate of profit. The third problem is this question of use value versus exchange value or regular value. So use value is utility. Either things have utility or they don't. Either things are useful or they aren't. And then exchange value or value equals the price, and that's all determined by labor theory of value. And so Marx's definition of a commodity is something that's produced for exchange. So for example... Apples that are grown to be eaten, like having an apple tree on your farm, then you pick the apples and you eat them, or you have an orange tree in your backyard and you pick the oranges and you eat them. But those apples, those oranges, those are not commodities. But an apple grown to sell, like in an orchard, is a commodity. Marx's entire economic theory is an attempt to explain what the world would look like if this idea of commoditization was the only game in town, or in other words, if you only made things to be sold, what would that world look like? And he's willing to push that idea to the hilt. And what I mean by that is if you listen to the, the last podcast, we talked a lot about irony, and we talked about the fact that Marx used that irony in his writings, but he uses it as a liter literary device. Right? It's almost a form of satire. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say if we just had a world where everything was produced for sale, what would that world look like if you took it to its most absurd? And in that absurdity, in the most extreme cases, what Marx is trying to illustrate for everyone, what he's, what he's desperately trying to get the world to understand or people within the world to understand is what capitalism looks like to the participants. He realizes that the perception of capitalism, the perception of how market economies work, is different than what's really going on. The perception of how they work and how they actually work are two different things. How they look to people who are participating in the system and how they're actually affecting people who participate in the system are two very different things. And it's his belief that once people understand, and when we say people, what he's really talking about is the working once the working class really understands what is going on, they'll be under they'll be able to understand what they're a part of, and they will consciously choose to change the social. And within the idea of the working class, you'll have another phenomenon where the bourgeoisie realize that they are also working class. And you'll have this unified class conscious because in Marx's idea the, the middle class is just as compelled to work as the working class. When you have this unified class consciousness, you'll then have the necessary conditions to have a successful socialist revolution. And this intentionality, this unified class consciousness, this intentionality to change this, the social order, that's going to be what separates the socialist revolution from all other revolutions. So then this begs the question, how does Marx explain commodities exchange under capitalism? And he says, for most people, 
it goes something like this. It goes commodity, money, commodity. You trade a commodity for money, and then you use that money to buy other commodities. And in most cases, especially in the cases of the working class, the commodity you're trading for money is the commodity of human labor, specifically your human labor. Right? You trade that for money, and then you use that money to buy the other commodities that you need to sustain yourself. But then there's a small group of people who do something different. They start with money, they buy commodities, and then they sell those commodities for a greater amount of money. And those are your capitalists. They take money and they buy human labor, living human labor, that creates things, and then they take those things and they sell them for more money than the labor was worth. All right, they, they make a profit. But where does this profit come from? All right, enter the labor theory of value. This is Marx's micro theory of the world, right? It's his theory of how transactions work in a localized sense. With the labor theory of value, Marx isn't trying to, to illustrate his larger theory of the economy. He's just trying to explain how transactions work. In the 18th and 19th century, there were really three competing theories on value. So in France, you had this idea that value comes from land. In England, you had this idea that value comes from trade or gold. And then you had this enlightenment theory of value where value comes from work. Um, it originated with John Locke. It was picked up by Adam Smith and David Ricardo. Now Marx looks at himself as the inheritor of the labor theory of value, and he's going to publish the most advanced account of the labor. It's, it's the most refined version of the labor theory. Of, and within the labor theory of value, we have this idea that the exchange value of any commodity is determined by the amount of socially necessary labor time for its production. Right. So the socially necessary labor time or SNILT is defined as quote the labor time required to produce any use value under the conditions of production normal for a given society and with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor prevalent in the society, end quote. In other words, that's just a way of saying that the socially necessary labor time to produce any commodity, right, is the amount of time given the normal production conditions with a laborer who has the average amount of skill and ability within a labor pool within a society. Right, when we talk about use value, we're talking about the utility of something. Is it useful? In other words, we're just talking about... So the long-term equilibrium price of a thing is determined by the amount of socially necessary labor time it takes to produce it. When you hear a term like long-term equilibrium price, just think of that as the normal price. In other words, long-term equilibrium price is a modern way of explaining or saying this is the natural price of something. Right? Note that in this definition, it includes both intensity and technology. Right? Marx, Marx is talking about complex markets. And so inefficiencies within that market, that's your fault. That's the capitalist's fault. If you can't produce something, if you haven't figured out how to do it as efficiently as somebody else, you know that's, that's on you. Labor time is an important phrase to pay because the only source of new value comes from living human labor. So all exchange value, the value of anything, the thing that makes it worth money, is the fact that human labor was needed to produce it. In Marx's view, human work is the single common factor between all things produced. Work is a commodity, just like whatever is being produced. Work is human work is part of the raw materials needed to create whatever that thing is. Therefore, wages of a worker reflect the cost to produce the work and not the cost to produce the thing that's being made, right? So, so think of that. Uh, let's put it in like terms of an auto worker. In Marx's view of wages, the wages you pay the auto worker reflect the cost of producing and training the auto worker. It doesn't reflect the cost of the automobile being produced, right? If we wanted to give a, here's another example. 
Here's another example. Look at the difference in pay between, I don't know, say a middle manager and a CEO. The CEO is going to be paid far more because it takes more to produce somebody capable of being an effective CEO than it does to produce somebody capable of being an effective middle manager. Or at least this is Mark's view of wages. Now, it's important to note within this that Marx doesn't consider winner-take-all markets. An example of a winner-take-all market would be like Major League Baseball. So the question would be, why is a Major League Baseball player paid more than somebody in the minors? Right? If you're a Major League Baseball player, you're paid pretty comfortably. If you're a Minor League Baseball player, uh, not so much. Marx doesn't really offer an explanation for this. The best we can get, and you, you have to kind of extrapolate out, you have to extrapolate this out, is that part of what goes in to finding the select few people who can be Major League Baseball players is all the other failed players. Or it's the infrastructure that goes into producing this small group of people who are amazing baseball players. Consumption of living human labor causes the creation of fresh value, right? That's the only place you can get fresh value. So if you buy a, a meal, a nice meal at a restaurant, you know, I, I don't know, you go to a really nice restaurant, you pay a thousand bucks to eat. The wine's fantastic, the food's great, but once you consume the meal, the meal's gone. It has no real utility in this model. But if you took that same thousand bucks and you paid someone to paint the inside of your house, you've consumed their labor like you would consume food. But that human labor adds value to the house. You know, if you went to sell the house, it would be more valuable because of the $1,000 investment than it would be had you spent that 1000 bucks on that really nice meal. In Mark's theory of wages, he notes that wages are always driven to the subsistence level. This is actually one of his more accurate observations. And he says it's always driven to the subsistence level because of this pool of unemployed workers. You always have a little bit of unemployment, no matter how good the economy is, and so that will always allow you to drive wages down towards the subsistence. So what is subsistence? Well, it's, it's not something that he really goes into depth exploring, other than to say that it's different depending on where you are, and it changes over time. What subsistence is in 2018 America is not what it was in 1918 America, which is not what it was in 1818 America. All right, so let's look at an example of a transaction governed by Marx's micro theory. Let's say we have a factory that makes widgets. And it doesn't really matter what they make, but they make something. And the workers in that factory, they work 10 hours a day. Right? We'll call this factory A. And so the capitalist who owns factory A recovers the wages of the workers in the first four hours of production, right? He hasn't recovered all his costs because there's some other costs other than wages, but he recovers wages, which is the bulk of his cost in the first four hours. So the next six hours of production is surplus. Only a part of that is profit because he's got some other costs that he has to recover, but he has six hours a day of surplus production. Capitalist B in the next factory over, is doing the same thing as capitalist A. And then capitalist B comes up with this great idea. Instead of six hours of surplus production, he wants seven hours of surplus production. So what does he do? He makes the working day 11 hours instead of 10. So now capitalist B has a competitive advantage because he has one more hour of surplus production. He has one more hour to gain more profit than capitalist A. Right, and, they, and they're in the same industry. They're doing the exact same thing. So capitalist A, regardless of whether he wants to or he doesn't, has to make his people work 11 hours a day so he can keep up with capitalist B. Marx accurately points out that capitalists don't fear the working class, don't fear him in any regard because they're easily replaced. You know, if you go to the capitalist and say, hey, boss, we don't want to work 11 hours a day. We want to work 10. He says, well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's too bad. You know, here's your last check. Take a hike. And he finds somebody else because there's always that pool of unemployed people. Workers are replaced easily. But he absolutely fears the other capitalist because the other capitalist can put him out of business. But this isn't going to work 
long term, right? You can't keep increasing the amount of hours a day the workers work because at some point they got to sleep. Your ability to increase the working day is going to be limited by physical limits. The workers can only work so long and there's going to be political limits. Over time, the workers have the ability to organize. They figure out how to play the game a little. They have a little political clout. They have policy makers who can dictate what the working day will or will not. So Marx points out that the real secret to increasing productivity, the real secret to increasing profit, is not to go from A to B, not to go from a 10-hour day to an 11-hour day, but to go from A to C, which is recovering your wages in three hours instead of four. In other words, don't make the day longer make your workforce more efficient, right? This is done through technological innovation. So now we have factory, you know, capitalist A, who instead of making the day longer, you know, invests in some sort of technology that makes his workers more efficient. So now he's capturing wages in three hours instead of four. And now he has his seven hours of production or his seven hours of surplus production. So what does capitalist B do? He does the same thing. He invests in the technology. He reduces, you know, the working day from hours to 10 hours. He has his seven hours of surplus production, right? This is capitalist. The minute one capitalist starts investing in technology, they all have to start investing in tech. And so we see capitalism start moving forward and it's being driven by constant dynamic innovation, right? It's constantly improving technology to make workers more efficient. But Marx knows that as time goes on, your investment in this technology becomes higher and higher and higher. So production becomes more capital intensive, right? If we say more capital intensive, what it means is it requires more of an investment. It requires more money up front to start doing that form of production. You have the workers' wages, which will kind of go up over time a little bit. But what you're finding is you're spending more and more money on tools to help the worker be more productive. Right, You're investing more and more and more money in things that don't produce value. So this leads to the belief of this declining rate in profitability. Right, The rate of profit begins to decline as technology is more widely implemented because technology helps the workers be more efficient, but it doesn't create any new value. And so this is why... People in the 18th and 19th century believe that you have this declining rate in, right? At the time, you know, to really believe this, it requires some some pretty dubious assumptions, but it was a convention of the time. And so we have to understand that because Marx is writing in that time. He didn't have the benefit of our time. All right, here's the interesting thing. Marx talks about exploitation of the worker, right? Capitalism naturally does this. This is just a natural natural thing within it. Where do you think, and the three examples we had of A, B, and C, or exploitation was the greatest? And the answer is exploitation was greatest in example C, you know, using or investing in technology to make the worker more effective. He has a formula to measure this. We're not going to get into it because it basically boils down to this. It doesn't matter whether you, the worker, think your life is better off under system C than system and you might actually feel that your life is better. Work's made a little easier. You can work a little faster. You know, you've got your 10-hour day. But the gap between you and the capitalist is now bigger than it was before. So you're worse off. Remember, this is a freedom argument, not an egalitarian argument. You're not worse off because you have less in relation to the capitalist. You're worse off because the capitalist is better able to compel you to work. Marx believed that our perception of happiness or our level of happiness is not determined by what we have, but what we have in relation to others, right? This is like kind of the keeping up with the Joneses thing, right? If I have a nice TV, I'm happy only until I realize my neighbor has a nicer TV than I do. Now I have to get a nicer TV to match my neighbor, And then I feel happy again. Marx was half right insofar as people do compare themselves to others, but only others who are similar to them. And we have 150 years of data to support this. Let's take auto workers, for example. Auto workers at Ford are only going to be upset 
if they find out that guys working for GM doing the exact same thing are making $5 more now, that's who they compare themselves to, other auto workers. They don't compare themselves to the corporate lawyers who are on retainer for Ford and GM. If they find out those guys are making $300,000 more a year than they are, they don't care because they're not similar. Marx was operating under the assumption that people would compare themselves to those who are not like them. In other words, that the working class would compare themselves to the capitalists. And that when they realize the disparage or the disparity, when they realize the disparity between themselves and the capitalists, this would force, this would propel them to become militant. Let's talk about exploitation a little more. In Marx's model, exploitation has nothing to do with cheating people. When Marx talks about exploitation, what he means is that the transaction between the worker and the capitalist is asymmetrical. It's not equal. That transaction, that relationship is stacked in the capitalist's favor. The capitalist can't force the worker to work longer and harder. There are too many obstacles, right? So he's got to increase the use of technology to improve the efficiency of his laborers and cover his labor costs faster, right? It's a higher form of exploitation because by increasing the technology to increase the efficiency, capitalism has now become dynamically productive, right? This is agreed upon by both Marx and modern economists. This pressure to innovate is driven by the competition amongst the capitalists. The greater the increase in technology, which is just now a function of how the system works, right? It's, it's endemic to the system. Increase in technology is now always going to happen the greater the exploitation of the worker. In other words, as the increase in technology goes up, so does the exploitation of the worker. But workers don't perceive it to be so. The capitalist profit comes out of that exploitation of the worker, right? But it's not the totality of it. It's not malevolent. To simplify it, the capitalist exploits the worker because the worker is creating something of value and it's ultimately being accrued to the capitalists. All right, think of it like this. The worker isn't being fully rewarded for the labor they produce. The worker isn't being fully rewarded for the value he's creating. A little bit of that value is being accrued to the capitalist instead of the worker. All right, that's, that's where the profit for the capitalist is. Yeah, what Marx is saying is the worker doesn't really perceive it because it's, you know, it's small. That, that transaction gets lost somewhere in the process. Right? And so that's, that's Marx's micro theory on how the economies works. Okay. So Marx also had a macro theory. Marx saw capitalism as ultimately self-defeating. Right. And so he had five parts to this theory of how capitalism would saw off the branch it was sitting on. Okay. And so the first part of that crisis, right? Problem number one is this problem of money. You know, money's a commodity. It's gold and silver. It has to have certain properties and market systems are completely dependent on money. Money makes the system go round. So the system is threatened if people hoard money. Right? Marx is talking in the, in the 1860s and 1870s. Currency was either paper or it was gold and silver. So he thought people were physically going to hold on to this money supply and there wouldn't be any available capital, wouldn't be any available money for investments. Right? And we've seen this. We've seen what happens when, quote unquote, people hoard money. The last time we saw this was during the financial crisis. And it wasn't so much people hoarding money, it was banks hoarding money. We had these banks who had trusted each other for decades and now they wouldn't lend money to each other, which means that they weren't lending money out to people, which means you had no money for investments, which means the economy comes to a halt. Problem two we already talked about was this declining rate in profitability. So we talked about that already. Problem number three was monopolies and the elimination of competition. The more capital intensive an industry, the higher the cost of entry, right? If you have to now purchase expensive machines to make your workers efficient enough to compete in that marketplace, it's going to cost you a lot more to gain entry into that particular industry than it costs the guys who are already in it. So that'll slow down the rate of people entering industry. In addition, 
you also have the competition within that industry eliminating your competitors. And so the fewer and fewer firms you have working in a particular industry and the fewer and fewer firms you have entering that industry, the more likely you, the more likely you are to achieve a monopoly. And once a monopoly is achieved, you know, when you're the only one left standing as a capitalist, there's no one left to fear because there's no other capitalist in that industry and you're certainly not going to fear the worker. There's also no need to innovate. All right, problem four was this idea of underconsumption. Marx believed that workers collectively couldn't buy what they were producing, right? This is the idea of consumer-based economies, right? Marx thought consumer-based economies would die after 2%, 2 to 3% of the market. He didn't realize that you could have a consumer-based economy be 70% of your economy like it is today. If there's underconsumption, then there's not enough demand to feed the needs of the system. This is why guys like Smith, Adam Smith, advocated imperialism. Right? This is why you have an imperialistic age in Europe, because it's the search for new markets. They were worried about running out of markets. They were worried about running out of demand for their supply. To Marx, this is a structural problem. Right? It's a problem of wages being pushed to subsistence. Okay, And five was this idea of working class consciousness, right? Marx thinks that the working class will realize the other four things are happening. They'll conclude that the benefits of the capitalist system are no longer worth their quote-unquote chains. They become radicalized. They take to the streets. They organize in mass. They revolt. You know, you have a full-blown socialist revolution. And while Marx wanted to see a socialist revolution, Marx is very clear about the fact that socialism is no more at equilibrium than capitalism, right? In other words, he's saying it's not about, he's saying socialism is no more equitable than capitalism. People are no more equal under socialism than they were under capitalism. There's still going to be disparities between the haves and the have-nots, right? It has its own internal contradictions. Socialism is about each according to his ability, each according to his work, under Marx's idea of socialism, the worker gets back what he puts in. The right of the worker under socialism is to get what they produce. The principle and the practice are the same thing. Right? You are rewarded based on your ability to produce. But you're fully rewarded for that. There's no accruing some of that value to someone else. Under capitalism, the worker appears to be paid for work. But some of that work is going to the capitalist. Right? But there are limits under this system. We talked about, we talked about internal contradictions. Right? And the limitation of socialism, the internal contradiction is that even if you reward people for the equity they put in, even if you fully reward them for the work that they do, you're still going to have inequality. Everyone is just a worker now, but each worker has unique gifts. Some people are stronger, some people are smarter, some people are faster, and not all types of work are equal, and not all work has the same demand. Not to mention that some people have more demands on their income. Right? This would be the example of, you know, if you do, if you have the same ability working in the same industry as the guy next to you, but you have a wife and two kids and he's single, even though you're rewarded equally, it's going to feel different. It's going to allow you, you to participate in the economy differently. And to Marx, these things are inevitable in a socialist revolution, right? But socialism's advantage is it's not as hypocritical as capitalism. Workers are fully rewarded for their work. There's no exploitation. There's none of that accruing a little bit of their, of their value to the capitalist. And he believed that socialism would eventually become, would eventually transform into communism. Communism is a little different. If communism had a slogan under Marx, it would be each according to his ability, each according to his need. Marx believed that as economies matured, as you went from capitalism to socialism, right, production wouldn't slow down. You'd still be able to maintain high levels of production, and you'd create this superabundance. And then once you had this superabundance, you could have abolished this idea of the right 
of ownership of your work. Because it wouldn't matter. There would be no scarcity. In superabundance, there is no scarcity. That means you can take care of people based on your on their needs because you're not worried about meeting those needs. Right? Remember to Marx, you can't make you can't make the delineation between needs and Marx also believed that under communism, because of this superabundance, you'd have the withering away of government. Because the role of government, at least in economic terms, is to decide who gets what and who gets how much. Well, if you're not dealing with scarcity, then there's no need to determine who gets what and who gets how much, because it's no longer a question. But why now, all of a sudden, are Marx and his followers so focused on needs? And that's because they realized to keep going, to keep an economy going, or to keep capitalism going, they had to find new markets. And if you couldn't physically find a new market, then you had to manufacture a new market by creating some new want or desire and have people believe that that's a need. He called these artificial wants. Or excuse me, he called these artificial needs. And so now that you have the superabundance, all these artificial needs go away because you don't have to create new markets to keep the capitalist machine going. So then the question is, well, is this a good system? or? Because at the end of the day, this is still a theory. When Marx is writing this stuff out, socialism, communism is not being practiced anywhere. It's Marx's belief of what will be happening next. It's where he sees economy is going and to him a lot of what we want is not actually what and all that goes away with superabundance but again the whole linchpin is achieving almost in a utopian sense being able to achieve a superabundance of production it's being able to eliminate scarcity and that's where the whole thing falls apart because even if we grant that needs are things that you need not to die and we only try and meet those, we still have to deal with scarcity. We still have choices to make. And if we choose to meet A, B, C, then we can't meet X, Y, Z. And then once you understand that meeting needs involves trade-offs, it puts this notion of hyperabundance on it, right? Scarcity is just endemic to the human condition. Scarcity is part of the human condition. You can't get rid of it, right? And you will always need someone and some system to address scarcity. And that's why you'll always have a world where you'll have to make political choices and those political choices will be tied to economic choices. So let's talk a little bit about the legacy and the failures of Marx's theories, Right, And the first one is the one we just talked about. And it's this idea of persistence of scarcity and politics. Socialism and communism are simply not possible because you'll never get to a place where you'll be hyper-productive enough to overcome basic humans. Right? And then you have problems with his, with his macro theory, with this five-part theory of crisis that would eventually lead to the socialist and communist revolution. These five things are basically a theory of the invisible. To Marx, you know, it's sort of an evil, mean, invisible hand. Smith's idea of the invisible hand was much more benign. There were no real moral arguments in Smith's economic theories concerning the invisible hand anyway. Money, right? Marx believed people would hoard money. And they can, and you do have money supply problems. You even have them in in modern times. Uh, Late 20th century, there was a huge liquidity crisis in Mexico. Whole Mexican economy was on the verge. But Marx underestimated the capitalist society to overcome these crises. In Marx's world, you didn't have things like countries coming together and putting together aid packages for other countries. Right? And that's exactly what happened. This, this Mexican debt crisis was avoided because the U.S. and a couple other countries put together a $50 billion aid package to solve this problem. That was unheard of in Marx's. Governments didn't have the ability to be that nimble. The next problem Marx laid out was this declining tendency in the rate of profit, right? Widely held and accepted view by all economists. Marx needed to account for this to be taken serious. And that whole theory is dependent on the idea of a finite amount of industries, right? There's only a finite amount of industries and there's only a finite amount of markets, to sell those things to. 
which is wrong, but I don't think you can blame him too harshly. I mean, it's the 1860s and the 1870s, for God's sakes. You're really in the, still the infant stages of capitalism. It probably seemed to him that there weren't too many industries to get into. And historically, he probably had a lot of evidence to suggest that. Obviously, we know different, but we have 150 years of economic hindsight. We have 150 years of watching industries evolve and adapt. So we have plenty of examples to convince ourselves that there's always a fresh source of profit. But putting that aside, if the rate of productivity exceeds the rate at which capital is displacing labor, then there'd be no reason to expect the rate of profit to fall. In other words, Marx screwed the math up, right? So long as you're more productive than the rate at which, you know, the capital you're investing in in technology is getting rid of labor, then there's no reason to expect that that profit margin to fall. He screwed up in the accounting. Monopolies. Competition eliminates competitors. This is only true with a fairly restrictive set of assumptions, right? This idea that the more the more technology advances in a particular market, the higher the the barrier of entry and competition with that market is eliminating your competitors, right? So eventually there it's like the Highlander, there's only going to be one left and then they'll right. That only holds true if you have a fairly set of restrictive assumptions. Now that being said, this does happen. Right, and it's happening now, but it's in fewer industries than we think. It's a couple of few big examples we can point to. But but we do see small companies disrupt big, large, legacy industries all the time. Silicon Valley is full of these. Since we've used the auto industry before, just think of uh, Tesla. Smaller company disrupting these big, large, legacy companies like you know, Ford, GM. Right, so the tech industry, Silicon Valley completely disproves Marx's thinking on on monopolies. Underconsumption over production. Workers as a whole can't buy things they produce. Right? And this was also believed by guys like Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes. Well, at one sense we know that this isn't a problem because 70% of our economy now is based on consumer goods. So obviously the people working in the economies can afford the stuff they're producing. Early guys like Smith believed that you had to you had to have a system where you could find new markets and that was the advocation of imperialism, right? But even when you have situations where you have periods where workers collectively can't afford the things they produce, like during the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Recession, you know, of 2009, 10, 11, and 12, governments can still do things to overcome underconsumption. That's what John Maynard Keynes was famous for. John Maynard Keynes is the guy who came up with the idea that if you have a situation where you have a stagnant economy based on underconsumption, then you got to spend money at the bottom of the economy so people can start buying things again. Keynes is the guy who helped FDR engineer the New Deal. You know, President Bush and President Barack Obama's response to the financial crisis was also Keynesian in nature. You know, you had the bailout package and you have the stimulus plans that provided money that people could start spending to buy things again. Just buy anything. And finally, class consciousness. Believe that everyone but the capitalists would realize they were in the same boat. They'd unite, they'd rebel, they'd choose to have this new social order. And obviously we know that's not true because people don't compare themselves to people they're not similar to. You know, and that finally brings us back to the micro theory, the labor theory of values. So we've we've looked at Marx's you know, we started off by looking at his micro theory, then his macro theory, then we critiqued his macro theory, and now we're going to critique the micro. And the whole micro theory is driven by this idea, right? Living human labor power is the only source of new. And this is a whole lot of problem. For one, it ignores dead workers, right? When we say dead workers, basically what we're talking about is people who created technology that works more efficient or people who created systems that made work more efficient, you know, you have to ask the the, leg, the question, did their legacy not contribute any value? Are you telling me that their experience, their knowledge, their creations have no value now? It also assumes that the capitalists and the bourgeoisie contribute nothing, that their work is completely worthless. And what about the spouse at home? Why is it the worker is the only one who's being exploited? Isn't the spouse also being exploited through extension of her husband? 
in addition, is her support of the worker, taking care of him, feeding him, raising the kids, does that have no value either? Okay, the labor theory of value is at the heart of... And as much as it is an argument about production, there's also a moral argument behind the labor. Right? And that moral argument is, you know, does making something create ownership? Labor power is the common denominator in the production of all commodities. Right? This is a terrible argument, but what's wrong with it? Let's take, for example, earlier on we talked about eating a meal versus paying for a house, right? We pay somebody to eat a fine meal or we could pay someone to paint our house. Why do we say it's worthless to consume something? You need energy to produce labor. There's a critique of the labor theory of value. The author says, let's imagine an economy where there's only three commodities. There's corn, there's books, and there's labor. Yes, it's true that you need labor to produce corn and books. Yes, it's true that books alone cannot produce corn or labor. No, it's not true that it doesn't require corn to produce labor and to produce food or any other thing that is needed to produce labor power will have the same properties that labor power has because it's it contributes to that labor power. So based on this idea, we could just as easily do a corn theory of value or a food theory of value as we could do a labor theory of value. The math would be exactly the same. But would we talk about the exploitation of corn by the capitalist the same as we would talk about the exploitation of the labor power of the worker by the capitalist? Probably not. Right? And this critique is interesting to us because it points out that regardless of what Marx says, the labor theory of value is not a technical issue. It's a moral issue. We don't say that the corn is being exploited. And if we did, we wouldn't believe that it was being exploited the same way the person is being exploited. Right? But if you think that's too extreme, let's substitute something a little closer to home. Instead of corn or human labor, let's substitute in animal labor, let's substitute a horse. Let's think of a horse working in a mine shaft. The horse works 10 hours a day hauling carts out of a mine shaft, right? And it takes the horse four hours to overcome the cost to feed it and the cost to house it and the cost to keep it working. And so it gives the capitalist six hours of extra production. Would we, would we talk about the horse's labor being exploited? I guess it depends on whether we believe the horse is a moral agent or not. But even if we did believe the horse was a moral agent, would we believe it's a moral agent just like we are? The moral argument here is that the degree to which the quote-unquote exploitation is cruel or unjust is all dependent on the idea that people believe they are entitled to the creations of their labor. So even if we reject the, the idea of the labor theory of value as being the only source of fresh value, we're still kind of left with this like, nagging idea of workmanship. And that's still that idea that, well, if we make it, we own it. Like we're entitled to things via our sweat equity. You know, if I have a farm, if I'm a farmer and that farm's been in my family for generations, you know, I own it not only because I have the deed that's been passed down, but, you know, I have my blood, sweat, and my tears and my labor in that thing that's given me, it's given me mastery. And most people don't want to get rid of that. Do you want to get rid of that? But again, it's not accepted by everybody. You know, this came all, this, this, this whole moral argument of, of ownership via labor was all created by John Locke. You know, and, and John Locke basically said that, that God made man in his own image, so we're all mini-gods. We all have the capacity to own what we make. You know, but a different view on ownership, take Chief Seattle. You know, I had a quote once that said something to the effect, I had a quote to something to the effect that earth does not belong to men, men belong to the earth. So once we've gone through this, right, and we've, we've outlined what Marx's actual scientific beliefs on, on Marx were, and we've critiqued them, and we've proved that they're either ineffective, they're wrong, or they're just quaint 19th century ideas. Like, what are we left with? What is the relevance of studying any of this stuff? You know, does studying Marx actually give us something? 
Is it valuable in our daily lives, or is it like studying St. Thomas Aquinas? We do it because it's interesting, and it's fascinating to know what medieval scholars thought, but for all practical purposes, it's worthless to us in the 21st century. Marx does leave us. He leaves us with two things. And here's the first thing. Marx's theory of exploitation fails, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a good critique of capitalism. Something that markets do really well is they they reflect the inequalities within them. They are stacked in favor of the status quo, but they don't tell us how we got the status quo, right? They don't give us an account of the justice of those inequalities within that market. They just show us what they are, right? And justification of markets is not the failure of Marx's theory. In other words, markets are not justified because Marx's theory fails, The second thing Marx leaves us to address is, well, it's the thing that was most important to him and the thing that's that's most often over, and it's this idea of freedom. At the end of the day, Marx's theories are all, right? You can't fix labor theory of value. You kick it to the side, but you're, you're still at the end of the day left with this idea of Marx just talking about freedom, right? His utopian theory, his socialist and communist theory for, for providing freedom, you know, it's unsustainable and it fails, But Marx's arguments about class is, again, an argument about freedom. And it's all based on the idea that selling labor becomes a compulsive thing. You don't sell your labor because you want to. You sell your labor because you have to. At the end of the day, you have a system that empowers one group of people to insist that the other group of people work for them. It's a disturbance, right? It's a theory of the distribution of power. It's not about the calculations of X. And the enduring argument that we have, and an argument that's playing out every day in the 21st century, is this argument concerning power. To Marx, a world in which, a world that is organized so that one group has power to dictate how another lives is an unjust world. So in neo-Marxist literature the stuff that's actually taken seriously, the neo-Marxist attitude, which is something that we deal with today. It's an an ideological thought for the day. Some people feel that it's just rampant in universities. Totally gets rid of labor theory of value. Doesn't even address it. But what they focus on is this question of power distribution. How is power distributed? How do those power relations play out? You know, if you listen to a lot of uh, Jordan Peterson, this is what he talks about. But neo-Marxism is maybe a podcast for... This is Thomas Mitchell, signing off.